0: Section 8 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 21, The Exhibition in Hyde Park, Part 1. The 1st of May, 1851, will always be memorable as the day on which the great exhibition was opened in Hyde Park. This year, 1851, indeed is generally associated in the memory of englishmen with that first great international exhibition as we look back upon it pleasant recollections come up of the great glass palace in hyde park the palace upspringing from the verdant sod which thackeray described so gracefully and with so much poetic feeling the strange crowds of the curious of all provinces and all nations are seen again the marvellous and at that time wholly unprecedented collection of the products of all countries the glitter of the kohenur the palm-trees beneath the glass roof the leaping fountains the statuary the oars the ingots the huge blocks of coal the lace-work the loom-work the oriental stuffs all these made on the mind of the ordinary inexpert a confused impression of lavishness and profusion and order and fantastic beauty which was then wholly novel and could hardly be recalled except in mere memory the novelty of the experiment was that which made it specially memorable many exhibitions of a similar kind have taken place since some of these far surpassed that of hyde park in the splendour and variety of the collections brought together two of them at least those of paris in eighteen sixty seven and in eighteen seventy eight were infinitely superior in the array and display of the products, the dresses, the inhabitants of far-divided countries. But the impression which the Hyde Park exhibition made upon the ordinary mind was like that of the boy's first visit to the play, an impression never to be equalled, no matter by what far superior charm of spectacle it may in after years again and again be followed. Golden, indeed, were the expectations with which hopeful people welcomed the exhibition of eighteen fifty one it was the first organized to gather all the representatives of the world's industry into one great fair and there were those who seriously expected that men who had once been prevailed upon to meet together in friendly and peaceful rivalry would never again be persuaded to meet in rivalry of a fiercer kind it seems extraordinary now to think that any sane person can have indulged in such expectations or can have imagined that the tremendous forces generated by the rival interests ambitions and passions of races could be subdued into harmonious cooperation by the good sense and good feeling born of a friendly meeting the hyde park exhibition and all the exhibitions that followed it have not as yet made the slightest perceptible difference in the warlike tendencies of nations. The Hyde Park exhibition was often described as the festival to open the long reign of peace. It might, as a mere matter of chronology, be called without any impropriety the festival to celebrate the close of the short reign of peace. From that year, 1851, it may be said fairly enough, that the world has hardly known a week of peace. The coup d'etat in France closed the year. The Crimean War began almost immediately after and was followed by the Indian mutiny, and that by the war between France and Austria, the long civil war in the United States, the Neapolitan enterprises of Garibaldi, and the Mexican intervention, until we come to the war between Austria, Prussia, and Denmark the short sharp struggle for german supremacy between austria and prussia the war between france and germany and the war between russia and turkey such were in brief summary the events that quickly followed the great inaugurating festival of peace in eighteen fifty one of course those who organized the great exhibition were in no way responsible for the exalted and extravagant expectations which were formed as to its effects on the history of the world and the elements of human nature but there was a great deal too much of the dithyrambic about the style in which many writers and speakers thought fit to describe the exhibition with some of these all this was the result of genuine enthusiasm in other instances the extravagance was indulged in by persons not habitually extravagant but on the contrary very sober methodical and calculating who by the very fact of their possessing eminently these qualities were led into a total misconception of the influence of such assemblages of men these calm and wise persons assumed that because they themselves if shown that a certain course of conduct was for their material and moral benefit would instantly follow it and keep to it it must therefore follow that all peoples and states were amenable to the same excellent principles of self-discipline war is a foolish and improvident not to say immoral and atrocious way of trying to adjust our disputes they argued let peoples far divided in geographical situation be only brought together and induced to talk this over And see how much more profitable and noble is the rivalry of peace in trade and commerce, and they will never think of the coarse and brutal arbitrament of battle any more. Not a few others, it must be owned, indulged in the high flown glorification of the reign of peace to come, because the exhibition was the special enterprise of the prince consort, and they had a natural aptitude for the production of courtly strains. But among all these classes of pian singers, it did happen that a good deal of unmerited discredit was cast upon the results of the great exhibition for the enterprise was held responsible for illusions it had of itself nothing to do with creating and disappointments which were no consequences of any failure on its part even upon trade and production it is very easy to exaggerate the beneficent influences of an international exhibition but that such enterprises have some beneficial influence is beyond doubt, and that they are interesting, instructive, well calculated to educate and refine the minds of nations, may be admitted by the least enthusiastic of men. The first idea of the exhibition was conceived by Prince Albert, and it was his energy and influence which succeeded in carrying the idea into practical execution probably no influence less great than that which his station gave to the prince would have prevailed to carry to success so difficult an enterprise there had been industrial exhibitions before on a small scale and of local limit but if the idea of an exhibition in which all the nations of the world were to compete had occurred to other minds before as it may well have done it was merely as a vague thought a day-dream without any claim to a practical realization prince albert was the president of the society of arts and this position secured him a platform for the effective promulgation of his ideas on june thirtieth eighteen forty nine he called a meeting of the society of arts at buckingham palace he proposed that the society should undertake the initiative in the promotion of an exhibition of the works of all nations the main idea of prince albert was that the exhibition should be divided into four great sections the first to contain raw materials and produce the second machinery for ordinary industrial and productive purposes and mechanical inventions of the more ingenious kind the third manufactured articles and the fourth sculpture models and the illustrations of the plastic arts generally the idea was at once taken up by the society of arts and by their agency spread abroad on october seventeenth in the same year a meeting of merchants and bankers was held in london to promote the success of the undertaking in the first few days of eighteen fifty a formal commission was appointed for the promotion of the exhibition of the works of all nations to be holden in the year eighteen fifty one prince albert was appointed president of the commission the enterprise was now fairly launched a few days after a meeting was held in the mansion house to raise funds in aid of the exhibition and ten thousand pounds was at once collected this of course was but the beginning and a guarantee fund of two hundred thousand pounds was very soon obtained on march twenty first in the same year the lord mayor of london gave a banquet at the mansion house to the chief magistrates of the cities towns and boroughs of the united kingdom for the purpose of inviting their cooperation in support of the undertaking prince albert was present and spoke he had cultivated the art of speaking with much success and had almost entirely overcome whatever difficulty stood in his way from his foreign birth and education he never quite lost his foreign accent no man coming to a new country at the age of manhood as prince albert did ever acquired the new tongue in such a manner as to lose all trace of a foreign origin And to the end of his career, Prince Albert spoke with an accent which, however carefully trained, still betrayed its early habitudes. But except for this slight blemish, Prince Albert may be said to have acquired a perfect mastery of the English language, and he became a remarkably good public speaker. He had indeed nothing of the orator in his nature, it was but the extravagance of courtliness which called his polished and thoughtful speeches oratory. In the prince's nature, there was neither the passion nor the poetry that was essential to genuine eloquence, nor were the occasions on which he addressed the English people likely to stimulate a man to eloquence. But his style of speaking was clear, thoughtful, stately, and sometimes even noble. It exactly suited its purpose. It was that of a man who did not set up for an orator, and who, when he spoke, wished that his ideas rather than his words should impress his hearers it is very much to be doubted whether the english public would be quite delighted to have a prince who is also a really great orator genuine eloquence would probably impress a great many respectable persons as a gift not exactly suited to a prince there is even still a certain distrust of the artistic in the english mind as of a sort of thing which is very proper in professional writers and painters and speakers but which would hardly become persons of the highest station prince albert probably spoke just as well as he could have done with successful effect upon his english audiences at the dinner in the mansion-house he spoke with great clearness and grace of the purposes of the great exhibition it was he said to give the world a true test a living picture of the point of industrial development at which the whole of mankind has arrived and a new starting point from which all nations will be able to direct their further exertions it must not be supposed however that the project of the great exhibition advanced wholly without opposition many persons were disposed to sneer at it many were sceptical about its doing any good not a few still regarded prince albert as a foreigner and a pedant and were slow to believe that anything really practical was likely to be developed under his impulse and protection a very whimsical sort of opposition was raised in the House of Commons by a once famous eccentric, the late Colonel Sibthorpe. Sibthorpe was a man who might have been drawn by Smollett. His grotesque gestures, his overboiling energy, his uncouth appearance, his huge moustache marked him out as an object of curiosity in any crowd. He was the subject of one of the most amusing pieces of impromptu parody ever thrown off by a public speaker, that in which O'Connell travestied Dryden's famous lines about the three poets in three distant ages born, and pictured three colonels in three different countries born, winding up with, "'The force of nature could no farther go to beard the one she shaved the other two one of the gallant Sibthorpe's especial weaknesses was a distrust and detestation of all foreigners foreigners he lumped together as a race of beings whose chief characteristics were popery and immorality while three-fourths of the promoters of the exhibition were dwelling with the strongest emphasis on the benefit it would bring by drawing into london the representatives of all nations colonel Sibthorpe. Was denouncing this agglomeration of foreigners as the greatest curse that could fall upon England. He regarded foreigners much as Isaac of York in Ivanhoe regards the Knights Templars. When, asks Isaac in bitter remonstrance, did Templars breathe aught but cruelty to men and dishonour to women? Colonel Sibthorpe kept asking some such question with regard to foreigners in general and their expected concourse to the exhibition in language somewhat too energetic and broad for our more polite time he warned the house of commons and the country of the consequences to english morals which must come of the influx of a crowd of foreigners at a given season take care he exclaimed in the house of commons of your wives and daughters take care of your property and your lives he declared that he prayed for some tremendous hailstorm or visitation of lightning to be sent from heaven expressly for the purpose of destroying in advance the building destined for the ill-omened exhibition. When free trade had left nothing else needed to complete the ruin of the nation, the enemy of mankind, he declared, had inspired us with the idea of the great exhibition, so that foreigners who had first robbed us of our trade might now be enabled to rob us of our honour. End of Section 8